So without question, one of the places that has shaped you the most has been your home, all right, the place that you grew up, all right? So there's a company, Progressive, that tried to capture this in a series of commercials that they did. They created this character called Dr. Rick, who's the print-a-life coach. Anybody recognize this? Anybody remember this? Yeah. Uh, we love these, all right? So Dr. Rick, he'll dispense tough love to his clients who cannot help but imitate their parents. And so if you remember any of these clips from the scenes, he, he takes like this group out for like going and trying to help them in real lifetime, uh, learn what it's like to stop being like their parents and to kind of be themselves. So one of the scenes is they're in a movie theater. The movie has just concluded and someone starts clapping in the middle of it, right? And at the very end and he leans over to the person. He's like, stop clapping. No one who made the movies here. Right? You know that scene? Um, there's also the one where he's in a lady's home and he's going throughout the house and he comes to the couch and there's so many throw pillows on the couch that you can't sit anywhere. And so he looks at her and says, if you have nowhere to sit, you have too many. And so he starts throwing off the pillows. You know what I'm talking about? I found that more funny than you did. But <laughs> here's my favorite one. All right? So laugh, at, laugh with me just kind of make me feel better. All right, so there's this scene where uh, he's with this group and he's doing some consulting and he's trying to teach them how to silence their phone. You remember this one? So he's trying to teach them how to silence their phone. A lady speaks up and says, I don't think my phone has that function. And he interrupts her and he says, no, everybody's phone has it. The button's right here, right? <laughs> and I love these, all right? You cannot watch these commercials without the realization that your home has shaped you. And even more particularly, the leaders of your home have shaped you. We can all think about ways that we imitate our parents, whether we like it or we don't like it. There's things that we have inherited from them that maybe we hate, but we can't get away from. You know what I'm saying? Well, we see this idea reinforced in the passage that we're looking at this evening, all right? So in Paul's letter to Titus, he describes the church as God's household. In Galatians 6, you also see Paul relate it as the household of faith. So at the moment that we trust in Jesus, at that very moment, Christ brings us into the family of God. He makes us part of God's family. And just as our earthly homes shape us, so are we also shaped by the household of God. And here's the end result. The end result of being in and with God's people is that hopefully that we're going to be looking more and more like Jesus as a result of being a part of his church. Now, here's the reality, though. If you want this to come to fruition, you need leaders who can model this for you. You do. You need leaders who can model this for you. 1 Peter 5.3 puts it like this. Shepherd God's flock among you, speaking to those who are pastors within a church, not lording it over those entrusted to you, meaning that you're not domineering, that you're not forcing things upon people. But look what he says. But being examples to the flock. Men that are taking up their faith, living out that faith before their church, modeling what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And as the progressive commercial cleverly suggests, we become like the leaders of our homes. There's a pastor in California who puts it like this. Whatever the leaders are, the people become. Jesus said, everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher, drawing from Luke 6.40. Biblical history demonstrates that people will seldom rise above the spiritual level of their leadership. 
And that's why we have passages like the one that we're looking at tonight. So the one that the passage we're looking at is working through the qualifications for a pastor or an elder. These are synonymous terms throughout the New Testament, and so we're going to speak about them as such here tonight. And here's what we find, all right? The leaders that God requires for his church have been shaped by Jesus. If you're trying to boil down all the qualifications that Paul works through this passage as well as other passages throughout the New Testament, the leaders that God requires for his church are those that have been shaped by Jesus. And so when a church selects leaders who've been shaped by Jesus, typically, this isn't work out every, in every church, but typically those that elect or appoint leaders within the church that are shaped by Jesus, the rest of the church follows in suit. And so in this list of qualifications, um, we're going to see this, all right? Paul duplicates one of the qualifications more than once throughout this passage, and that qualification is that he is blameless, that he's blameless. We see the word blameless shaped in three areas, three different sections in this text. So he's blameless at home, he's blameless in his character, and then he's blameless in his doctrine, what he believes about the truth of God's word. And so here's what I want us to do. I just want us to look at these three different areas of qualifications. How this leader is to be blameless in the home, blameless in his character, and blameless in his doctrine. And here's my hope. My hope is that we catch a vision for what the end result of the church is for us, for every single one of us that are a part of Christ's church. This isn't just for a select group of people within the church. This isn't just for those that try really hard. This isn't for the people that seem like they have their life together. Every person that's part of Christ's church, the end result is that we are growing more and more and looking like our Savior who has saved us, that has cleansed us, and that has brought us into the family, and that we can never break free in a good way. Amen. <laughs> So here's what I want to do. I just want to wrestle with these three areas, all right? And my hope is that we catch a vision of what we can be as Christ's church, all right? So let's start with the home. We see this in verse 5 and 6. I'll read it to refresh us. It says this, The reason I left you in Crete, Crete is where uh, Titus is at. It's part of the Mesopotamia, I believe is how you say it. Um, and so beautiful place. Wicked people, all right? We'll see this throughout the rest of the passage. So the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So we get the sense of what Paul is even writing this passage for. Why he's writing to Titus is because they have planted a church. But there's things that were left undone. Paul left Titus there so that he could kind of tie those things up. Chief amongst those things was appointing pastors in these churches in the areas in and around Crete. And that's why we get this list of qualifications so Paul can help Titus know what to look for in those that are to be appointed as leaders in Christ's church. And where does he start? He starts in the home. We see this in verse 6. An elder must be blameless. Remember, that's the qualification that's repeated. Elder must be blameless. The husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. So we see two qualifications regarding the home here. The first is that the elder must be blameless in the home by being a husband of one wife, right? So this means that the man is blameless both in his marital as well as his sexual life, all right? So this does not exclude 
a person from being a elder in the church if they are not married or if they've been widowed and then recently remarried. That's not excluding them from this. What Rather, it means that the pastor is committed to his wife, both in person as well on a screen. All right? So in real-life relationships, he shows fidelity in his relationship with his wife, but as well as the images that he takes in from a screen, meaning he's not watching things, thinking and visualizing him being with another person. Make sense? And so look, then another way that you can kind of say this is he is unblameable in his marriage. All right? Now, I don't get the notion that Paul is speaking here about just someone that's trying to make it or stick it out in their marriage. All right? So you could say that a person is faithful, but while still very miserable in their relationship with their spouse. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? We probably all can think of people that we know in our life that are kind of doing this. I don't get that's the idea that Paul is speaking of here. I get the idea that Paul is speaking of a person that is seeking out, that is working towards God's vision for the home here. Wanting to experience the fullness of what God desires in a marital relationship within the life of a home between a husband and a wife. This is a man that is seeking out to love his wife as Christ has loved his church. What does Christ do with his church? What, we, what do we see in the scriptures? It shows us that Christ delights in the church as his bride. He has given everything for the church, his very life. The Ephesians chapter 1 says that all the, the heavenly blessings have been given to the church, Christ's bride. It means that the husband with his wife, sacrificially loves his wife, meaning he's laying down his own, his own wants, his own desires, and he's deferring to his spouse because he wants to set her up. He wants to sacrificially love her. He wants to pursue her. He wants to study and know her well so that he can step in and love and care and support his wife as Christ has loved the church. This is God's vision for what an, a leader of the church in his marital relationship looks Looks like whether you are in marriage and you're preparing, uh, you're you're seeking to walk in union with your spouse, or you are working towards marriage and you're trying to envision and you're working on your own life, preparing yourself for that time when you can step into a marital relationship. So I, I was at a conference a number of years ago, a long time ago, and there was a pastor that was getting up and introducing another guy that was going to come and talk. And whenever you do this, if you've ever been to one of these conferences, you have this pastor, they get up, they share a little bit about your like ministry experience, how, how long you've served at a certain church, some books that you've maybe written, some podcasts that you lead. But he started going in on this guy's marriage, like his wife, his relationship with his wife. And I'll never forget what he said because it's, it just was so, it, it just stuck out to you. Like you couldn't leave the room without remembering this. And uh, this guy said of this man, he said, anytime that his wife's name pops up in a conversation, there's a different type of smile that shows up on this man's face. There's a delight. There des there's a desire for his spouse there's evidence that shows that this man is willing to lay down his life for this woman that he so dearly loves. This is God's vision for a husband of one wife. He's living into God's desire for the home. So the pastor is a one-woman man, 
He's chasing God's design for marriage, and there is evidence that you can find of this in his life as you get in, dig into his life, you get into his home, you get around his dinner table, you go and do things outside of the home with him, you serve shoulder to shoulder with him. Like, you can see the evidence of this in his life. But Paul continues with the home as he addresses then the pastor's parenting. His children are faithful. So verse 6 says this, An elder must be blameless, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Now, this one's been tricky for pastors for a really long time, all right? I'm just going to be straight up with you, all right? So I, some translations state that the pastor's children must be believers, followers of Jesus. So I had a professor in seminary. Seminary is just this place where you go, like, study for, like, 100,000 hours the Bible, all right? And so uh, I was studying the Bible, and one of my professors there, he was a biblical counselor, and he served within a church for about 18 years, but whenever his son turned 18 and left the house, he had not declared a relationship with Jesus. And so that pastor, at eight, when this guy's son at 18 um, left the house, the pastor had to step down because the child was not a confessed believer. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here, though. All right, I think our translation gets it right in stating that the pastor's children are faithful. All right, So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, another, another letter that he writes to a church, that faith is a gift from God. Meaning, no parent can ensure that their children have trusted in or followed Jesus. Look, including pastors. Rather... I believe Paul is looking for a man who is faithful at lovingly discipling his kids as well as discipline, disciplining his kids in the home. And here's what I mean by that, all right? Discipling meaning that he's taking personal intention to get into the life of his kids, to know his kids' personalities, to know his kids' desires, and to work with their, his children in order to to disciple them up in the faith, teaching them, instructing them in what the Bible teaches about Jesus, our sin, and how we have a relationship with God, showing them the gospel by the own modeling of his own life, disciplining, I mean this, that not that there's this force or abuse that's happening in the home, but rather he's trying to work with his children to shape them in their knowledge of what's right and wrong, about how you're respectable in relationships, about how you are honest with others, not deceiving with your words, but being honest with your words. They're showing discipline in the home to where they're not wild or unruly, but actually he's trying to help them grow both as a human being as well as a disciple of Jesus. That's what Paul, I believe, is getting at here. And so the idea here is that a pastor is not just involved in his kids' lives, but actually intentional and getting into his life, trying to teach them Jesus, trying to help them prepare for a life and what it looks like to be a sensible adult, all right? So if you would, bear with me for a second, all right? This hits a little bit at my heartstrings, all right? So I grew up as a pastor's kid, all right? I grew up as a pastor's kid, and so I know what it's like to be a pastor's kid. And so I just want to speak in, hopefully for us as we're growing as a church, just what it looks like for us to be around pastor's kids, all right? What you need to realize is there are no qualifications for a pastor's kid. This is speaking about a pastor himself. There are no higher standards for a kid. You know what a title of a pastor's kid is? It's a kid, 
My kid is exactly like your kid, all right? Now, I felt being in churches, eyes that were on me in very specific ways, knowing that if I behaved in certain circles, that reports would be made to my parents, all right? Here's what I want you to realize, all right? You may come and you may give me reports about my kids. I'm going to treat my kids like kids. Look, if you would, I, I beg you that you would make this a church that my children can just be that, children. Same for Andy's kids. There's not higher expectations for them that they are kids. But if we are not walking in trying to disciple or discipline our kids, please come talk to us. But please, please don't place extra expectations on our kids. Please let this be a church that our kids grow to love the church rather than despise the church because of the way that people look at them within the church. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. All right. So look, I, I want us to have a big takeaway from each of these sections, all right? Because I'm, I don't want us just to have a vision for the leaders of the church. I believe this is something that God wants us to have a bigger picture for the church at large. And so here's my big takeaway for this, is that God desires thriving homes within his, his own household. We look at the qualifications here. These are not just something that God is declaring that he wants for the leaders of the church. He wants this for everybody. But the, there's a certain level to which a leader in the church is going to be held accountable for these things. But it does not neglect the idea that he wants this for all of us. God desires thriving homes within his own household. He wants marriages. He wants husbands and wives that are pursuing his vision for what a healthy marriage looks like, a sacrificial love, a mutual submission, a denying yourself, trying to put your spouse above yourself, placing their interests above your own, a delight that takes place in the marital relationship. Like these are the things that God wants within the life of his church. He wants this for you. Now, if you're thinking about a pastoral leader, spiritual leadership, it begins in the home. You can't consider a person for leadership in the life of the church if they're not blameless in their own home. Now, I want to speak in just before we kind of move on to the next section, um, because I just, like, these qualifications, they're, they're daunting, right? They are. If you, if, as we keep going you're probably going to feel this more and more. These qualifications, they feel daunting. If this is something that God wants for all of us, man, it just feels like a heavy burden on our shoulders, especially if you have accusatory conscience, right? You're going to look at this and it's like, I don't do any of this, and so I must be a failure. Like, that's not what I'm wanting as a result of this, all right? Marriage is hard. There may be some of us that are sitting in here, and we are. It's taking everything that we've got to continue on. Parenting is really challenging. It's really difficult. You may be at your wit's end here tonight because you didn't get any rest last night. It doesn't feel like any of the things that you're trying to do in shaping your children, providing discipline in your home to grow them up into sensible beings is working at all, right? There's times where it feels like they just constantly disobey in the home and you're just like, anytime that they're not around you, you're just hoping that something sticks, you know? When they're around other people, it's like, please, Please be respectable of somebody else, right? You're not respectable of me, but please be respectable of somebody else. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. Um, like, these things are hard. 
Here's what I want you to understand. These are not standards that qualify you to be a Christian. The only qualification for you to be a Christian is exclusive belief in Jesus. That Jesus has done everything for you. That you do not have to do anything to perform your way to God. Jesus has done everything for you. And so you trust completely upon Jesus. These are not qualifications to be a Christian. Look, it just may mean that right now is not the right time for you to be stepping up in leadership in the life of the church. And that's okay. That's okay. You're, the proper response, if you feel, man, I have work to do here, is that you don't give up. All right? You don't give up. Rather than shine away from these things, you actually lean into them. Like, God, I want to grow in this. Would you please help us grow in this? You pursue God's design for the home. Like, we're necessary. You ask for help, Right? Let's not be a people that are above asking for help in our own home, whether it be helping with the kids, helping with our marriage. If it's not something that we have the expertise within the church, we'll do everything we can to help you get plugged into someone that can help you outside of the church. But let's not be above asking for help. Let's pursue God's design for the home because that's what he wants for his church. He wants thriving homes. So the first one, if you're looking for a pastor that's been shaped by Jesus, he's blameless at his house. He's blameless in his home. The second one, the second place that we find blamelessness in this person's life is in their character. So we see this in verses seven through eight. I'll read it again to refresh us. Here's what it says. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, Self-controlled. 11 qualifications right there, all right? So regarding the character of godly leaders, Paul gives us two sets of lists, all right? So you have five that are in the negative, not this, not this, not this. And then you have six that are in the affirmative, right? Six that are the positive, like let them be this is essentially what Paul is saying. I just want us to work through these two sets of lists very quickly, all right, so try to keep up with me, um, and I'm going to try to do this so that we can get to the bigger picture of what I think God wants us to see here. So the first, Paul starts with a negative list. We'll start with that too. Here's the first one. You're not arrogant. All right, I think all these are going to be on the screen. Not arrogant, all right? So other translations have overbearing or stubborn or self-willed here, all right? So Paul is speaking in terms of ability, like um, a pastor that may hold himself in high regard with the abilities that he has, but also a pastor's willingness to own their own faults or sins. So they should not be arrogant about the ability that they have, nor should they be above owning their own faults or their own sins that take place amongst the household of God. God's leaders must not be like these headstrong or abusers of power within the life of the church, but rather they must be the ones that are the chief repenters in the life of the church. They're the ones that are modeling for the church that whenever you do fault, when you do wrong, this is what it looks like to go to somebody else to ask for their forgiveness, to confess your sin and repair the relationship. That's what a pastor does. They're the chief repenter in the life of the church. They're not one that shifts blame when it comes their way for a fault that they've done. They're not the ones that are pointing fingers at other people. They're not the ones that refuse to own their own wrongs. No, they own it. They step into it, and they're the chief repenters within the life of the church. Second, they're not hot-tempered. 
means they don't blow up on people, right? They don't blow up on people. Alexander Strzok, I think, says it well. He said, angry, hot-headed men hurt people, all right? So a role of a pastor, you're going to step into the life of people in situations that there's a lot of vulnerability that may take place around you. There's also very highly demanding and very critical people that are going to come your way. If you have a hot-tempered pastor, it does not make for a recipe of good. So a pastor must not be hot-tempered. They cannot be a person that's quick to pop off their lid when things come to surface. They must not be an excessive drinker. Now, being in St. Louis, you should hear a sigh of relief here, right? Excessive, not meaning that you abstain, right? So drunkenness leads to a variety of sins, and a pastor is one that knows his limits, that he can be around and can partake in good drink, but he does not do it in excess that leads and opens him up to other possible sins in this life. They're also not a bully. Literal translation here is they're not a striker, right? They don't, they're not inclined to getting in brawls. So, I mean, you have to look at this one and be like, what was happening in Crete? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, what were these guys getting into? Well, a pastor isn't one who goes around like looking for a fight, trying to stir something up. He's not a person that's trying to go in and stir up controversy within relationships, stir up controversy within God's household. Rather, he's a person that's ready to defend when necessary, but he does not provoke. Make sense? He's not greedy for money. Paul is addressing motive over practice here, all right? If you take in a large account what Paul is writing here, you see in elsewhere that Paul writes that pastors are worthy of the, the uh, money of their work. Like, they're worthy of being paid. This isn't a way for, like, Paul to instruct that either churches poorly pay their pastors, they don't pay them at all. That's not what Paul is getting at here. Rather, Paul is instructing that leaders of God's household aren't exploiting their position in order to get rich. All right, so here's a, a couple of examples of this. Um, pastors that are on social media that are using the pulpit to leverage a following on social media, that's exploiting, all right? Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time for you to share something, but if you are in the pastorate and you have like cameras and social media and stuff because you just wanna blast yourself, before other people, you need to check your motives. If you're a pastor and you're putting together sermon series, thinking more about the book that you're about to write than the people that you're trying to serve, that's exploiting your position in order for you to get rich. And that's not to be named amongst God's leaders. All right, so those are the negatives. Those are the five negatives. We're going to go to the positives now. Paul then moves to this positive list for the household leaders in this church. He starts off with, they are to be hospitable. This is not talking about throwing a good potluck, right? That's not what Paul's getting at. It's not southern hospitality that he's getting at here. He's actually talking about a pastor loves strangers, all right? A pastor is like Jesus in that he befriends sinners, so if you want to look at a pastor that leads well within his own household as well as in Christ's church, it's a pastor that makes people outside of the faith feel welcome whenever they come in. 
They love people that may not have a relationship with Jesus, but they know that the heart that Jesus has for those people that are off, far off from Jesus, they warmly step in as Jesus did in his life and ministry. They're approachable even to those that may have differing beliefs in what they personally believe. They're secondly, loving what is good. This is a pastor that loves virtue and is generous, all right? Generous both with his time as well as his resources. He loves the things that are good. They're going to stir God's people towards loving kindness, towards Jesus. The things that you would consider as right and just in this life, the way that the pastor would treat very difficult circumstances if he's sitting in a like premarital counseling or if he's sitting in marital counseling. He's not like trying to take sides because he wants a certain person to win, but rather he comes in, he's generous, he wants what's right, he wants what's best for both sides of the relationship, and so he steps in to counsel towards reconciliation, not an opposing uh, a winner and a loser. You know what I'm saying? He loves what's good. He's sensible. You can also use this word as like temperate or sober-minded. Um, you should think about this in that the pastor can make sensible, wise, discerning decisions both within his home but also then for the church. All right, so think about stewardship here. If a pastor cannot control the desires of his own heart to go out and buy frivolously, but rather he can't discern whether he should not buy something or should buy something. He doesn't know how to steward the resources that God has given him. It means he may not be sensible. If he can't control his finances in his home and act wisely there, then why would you trust him with the finances and the money of the church? It wouldn't make sense. A pastor needs to be sensible. A pastor is also to be righteous. He must be a Christian, A pastor must be a Christian. They lovingly obey Jesus. Not out of obligation. They lovingly follow Jesus. They see what Jesus has done for them. The sacrifice that Jesus has laid down for them in his own life. And they follow Jesus lovingly. They want to follow and obey his commands because of the love that has been shown them. Another pastor, that Pastor Lyle, he was here. He's from our sending church back in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he said that neighbors wouldn't be shocked to find out that this person was a pastor. Like if the pastor, like the next door neighbor, they wouldn't be surprised that this man loved Jesus. That's what Paul is essentially saying here. They must be righteous, must be a Christian, they must lovingly obey Jesus. Holy. Not only is he a Christian, but he is devoted and zealous for God. All right? He's unwavering in his commitment to Jesus. You get a sense whenever you're around this person that there's a passion and there's a fervor and a zealousness for Jesus that takes place in this man's life. So not only are they just a Christian, but they're like going after Jesus. They want to be like Jesus. They want to treat other people like Jesus. They want to share the good news of Jesus with other people that don't know Jesus. There's a holiness. There's a devoutness. There's a zealousness that takes place in this man's life. And then Paul concludes by saying that they are self-controlled. And this is a good summarizing quality. It's the last one that's listed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 6. Sin and emotion don't control this leader within the life of the church. The only master in this person's life is Jesus himself. 
quite the list, right? Well, here's, I think, our big takeaway. Look, God wants his people to be fully alive in Christ. He wants his people to be fully alive in Jesus. God enlists leaders in his church whose lives are shaped by Jesus because that's what he wants for all of us. He wants people that see the goodness of Jesus, they take the goodness of the gospel, they apply it to their own life, and then it shapes the way that they live. Not only does it shape the way that you live, but it also shapes your relationship with Jesus. Like there's a deep love inside of you that you want to order your schedule to where you can be around Jesus because you want to be like Jesus. And not only that, but you want to further it and you want to teach others what it looks like to love, follow, obey Jesus as well because it changes your life. God wants us to be fully alive in Christ. These 11 qualifications are what it looks like if you were to put from words to life, what it looks like to be fully alive in Jesus and the way that we act and live, interact with other people, it's this. So Paul is essentially saying, go find other people that are pursuing Jesus, that love Jesus, that love others as Jesus loved others, that are running after a relationship with God. Like these are the people that you should put before the church to lead the church because we want their life to rub off on other people's life as well. They should be shaped. Now, here's what we need to stop and notice, all right? We've looked at over 10 different qualities, 10 qualifications that Paul has listed here. Not yet have we looked at a skill or an ability in a person's life. It's talking about his home and it's talking about his character. And look, ability is important. We're about to get to this, but it is not the quintessential for a godly leader within the life of the church. All right, here's the trap that we've fallen into. We've elected leaders whose character cannot keep up with their ability and the church has has suffered because of it. There's been people that have been hurt by the church. There's been people that have been a part of churches that have fallen apart because their leaders were falling apart. We've placed people that are in positions that their character cannot keep up with yet. And here's the message when we do this. Here's the message that you share with your pastor. Here's the pastor that you share. Or here's the message you share with any other pastors that might arise within the life of your church that your performance matters more to us as a church than your character. That's what it tells the pastor. What you celebrate is what you replicate. So look, if you are celebrating performance in the life of the church far more than your person that is shaped by Christ, what do you think is gonna be what rises to the surface in the life of the church? People that are trying to perform because they want a place on the stage. And that's not... That's not God's vision for his church. It's not his vision for what he wants for us. Above all else, look, let's be a church that appoints leaders who help us become more like Jesus. We want to appoint leaders into positions in the life of the church that are shaped by Jesus because what should really be in our hearts is we want to be shaped like Jesus too. 
above all else in this world. We should want that we are progressively becoming more like Jesus. And if that means that we sacrifice skill and ability in order for us to have godly shaped men in the life of our church that are leading our church, as well as women in other positions too, we should aim for that far more before ability and skill. Our desire should be that we do not want to necessarily be entertained on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis, but through the whole of our church, we're shaped to look more like Jesus. And if that's the case, that means that we are going to look at a person's character, we're going to look at their home, we're going to look at their fervor for the Lord far before we can look at what they look like when they can stand up and they can get behind a pulpit to preach or strum a guitar and sing or do whatever else might bring attention to a person. So here's a quick application, all right? We've touched on the 11 qualities of a godly leader. Here's, a, here's an invitation that I believe God wants you, or here's a question I, I think that he wants to stir inside of us. Where is God inviting us to grow? So as we looked at these 11, it's likely that something stuck out to you, right? There was a little prick in your, your side or your spirit, like, ah, oh, that one stings a little bit. Look, here's the beauty about being in relationship with Jesus. He knows all the worst parts about you. Grace is what controls you. That means you can honestly look at yourself in the mirror and you can see the flaws that are in your life, the areas that you're not like Jesus yet, and you can address them knowing that you're not gonna be cast out from Jesus. So let's be a people that practice this good news of the gospel, that we're secure in Christ we look ourselves in the mirror and if there's something in here that we like there's a check in our spirit let's be honest about it let's consider where God's inviting us to grow to be more like Jesus as a result of this all right so household leaders of God's uh, church family are to be blameless in the home they're also to be blameless in their character and then lastly they're to be blameless in their doctrine we see this in verse 9 says this, holding to the faithful message is taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. All right, so um, we, ha- we considered this pretty heavily last week, all right? Last week, we looked at the household message, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a promise that God gave before time even began, that he was going to enter into this world, that he was going to stand in our place. He's going to live perfectly, die completely, raise victoriously from the grave all on our behalf. Nothing that we do, everything that he's done for us. This is a gospel that we said last week we never move beyond, but rather it's the thing that gets us in, it's the thing that keeps us, and it's the thing that sustains us till we see Jesus face to face. We never move beyond the gospel. It's the thing that roots us in this life. It's the thing that speaks life into us. It's the thing that gives us power to live with Jesus here in this life. And so we never move beyond the gospel. Now, in the midst of this, we see that there is an attack within the church of Crete against 
the, the Bible as well as the gospel message that Paul is speaking to here. All right, so we see this in verse 10 as well as in uh, verses 13 through 14. So let me just read this for you so we can kind of get an understanding of what's happening, all right? So verse 10 says this, For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, meaning they're standing up. They just like to hear their voice. What they're saying really doesn't have much substance to them, especially those from the circumcision party. So the circumcision party are those that are saying, you, yes, Jesus, but you also need to add this to this message in order for you to have a right standing relationship with God. And what Paul, you see throughout all the rest of his uh, letters that he writes to churches, he says, this is heresy. This should not be amongst you. The gospel that I came and I preached to you is the right and true message. We don't add to that message. We don't take away from that message. We hold faithful to that message. In verses 13 through 14, it says this, for this reason, rebuke them. He's talking about this part where he said like uh, Cretans were liars, they're deceivers, they're brawlers, like all that stuff. He says, for this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and commands of people who reject the truth. Meaning, again, there's other like rituals that the Jewish faith would, they would try to bring and lob onto Christians that just came to faith saying you need to also do this above and beyond just trusting in Jesus. And this is what it looks like to walk in faith with God. And what Paul is saying is this shouldn't be amongst you. And so pastors are to be those that are blameless in their doctrine, meaning that they both encourage and they refute. The pastor labors. He labors to study the scriptures, to know the scriptures. He works on his craft to come and bring God's word to you in such a way that you are encouraged to stay firm and steadfast in the good news of the gospel, not turning to anyone else besides Jesus, not adding anything to you on top of Jesus, but solely coming and preaching Jesus to you week in and week out, not going from the left, not going from the right in order that you may be deceived, but actually he's just coming up and articulating, helping you see Jesus throughout all the scriptures. That's what the pastor does. He encourages you, but then he also refutes, means that he goes against, he's willing to go and stand at bat against anything that might contradict this very message. And so that's exactly what we try to do here. We try to keep from any adding anything or subtracting to the truth. And so you hear messages like this in our world. We try to stand up and refute against these things that all religion leads to God or heaven. No, no. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the light. There's nobody else besides Jesus that can bring us to God, and so we fully trust in Jesus. We hear people say, I can't believe in a God who doesn't want me to be happy. Look, the greatest joy that you can ever find in this life is to be found in Jesus himself. We're not gonna point you in any other direction, especially if it means that we're gonna tolerate your sin. I don't mean this in a way to like bash you that we're going to come and we're going to be ugly to you. That's not what I mean in any sort of imagination. What I mean is if you come and you state this and you're trying to choose something besides Jesus because you think it's what's going to bring you happiness in this life, we're going to lovingly tell you the truth. We're going to lovingly continue to point you back to Jesus because the greatest joy that you can ever have in this life 
now or forevermore is found in Jesus. We're not going to allow you to, we're not going to lie to you. We're not going to allow you to be deceived. Like we're going to continue to speak the truth to you. Some may say, yeah, believe in Jesus, but you must also be baptized and then you must do communion and then there must be confession and there's all these other things that you must do to continue to walk in good graces with God. Look, no. Salvation is by faith through grace in Christ alone. Period. These are things that we hold value in. We want you to be baptized. Take your faith public. We believe this is important in walking in your discipleship with Jesus. Communion is a unique meal that God's people get to take with one another. And there's a specific way that the Holy Spirit is present with us when we, we take this and partake of it every single week. But look, they don't save you. Jesus saves you. So we walk and we do these things. We practice these things. But we are going to continue to preach and proclaim Jesus to you week in, week out, in everything that we do here at this church because it's Jesus and only Jesus that can actually produce anything in your life. So my big takeaway here is that knowing God through his word is to be the rule of life for his people. Knowing God through his word is to be the rule of life for his people, all right? So as we come to the scriptures, we're not sponges that are soaking in information because what happens with the sponge, you can just wring it out, right? We're not water channels where there's life that's coming from the scriptures and you're just kind of redirecting the water in different ways, spouting off passages to people as they may need it. That's not like actually doing much in your life. The illustration that the Bible gives is that you're like a plant that's planted by a stream of water. What happens with a plant? It soaks up the water, it absorbs the nutrients, and it produces life. And it's the same way for us that gather around the Bible. We are a people that seek to know God through his word, and we make it a rule of life in order to do so. All right? The Bible conveys to us who God is, who is person and character are. He actually reveals himself to us through the Bible. He's spoken to us and he continues to speak to us through the Bible. The way he has acted towards us in Christ Jesus is revealed to us through the Bible. So we never move beyond it. We never get over it. We continue to work our way through it. We want to know this forgiveness and this grace and assurance that we have in Jesus, the life that he has invited us to live with him, speaking of God, as well as his household, his people, both now and forevermore is given to us in the scriptures. Like this isn't just a promise that we get for the future and we just say like keep going until we see him face to face till we take our last and final breath here and we get to go see him. That's not God's design or his vision for his church. His vision is that we get to actually live as God's people here and now through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And we get our instruction and what that looks like to do that in the Bible. And so we are a people that seek to know God through his word and we make it a rule of life in order to be with him in his scriptures and in prayer on a regular basis. So here's our quick application, all right? What does your rule of life look like? All right, so I was on a phone call with a pastor this past week and he, I felt, gave a really good applicable thing that I just want to come share with you. He said, consider your natural transitions in your day, 
All right, so he talked about how he would wake up early, spend time with Jesus, he'd drive to work, he'd try to capitalize on his drive to work, spending time with God. Then he would get to work, he would have meetings. He always scheduled five to 10 minutes in between meetings so that he could stop and decompress and recenter himself on Jesus. If something popped up in a meeting and he didn't like how his spirit responded to it, Gave him time to think about it, process it, pray about it so he wouldn't carry it into his next meeting. Goes to lunch, he tried to rethink and rework through some of the stuff that he wrestled with God when he woke up early to spend time with him in his word. And so he's trying to refresh, he's trying to remember and rehearse the good news that he heard that morning. Goes back to work, he comes back home on his drive home, he had a driveway prayer. He sits down, he knows He has a family that loves him. He has a wife that's amazing. But he's like, I never know exactly what I'm walking into my house, right? (laughs) You don't know what happens in your kid's life. You don't know what has happened in your spouse's life. So you walk in. You know you have a great house, but sometimes you just don't know what's about to hit you. And so he prays for the second wind that he would be able to step in, pour himself out in his home. He, they'd work through highs and lows so they can think through how do we speak into one another's life in our home. Um, if you didn't have like a really bad day, what was your worst high? If you didn't have any highs, what was your highest low? Like how do we step in? How do we pray for each other? Before his head hits the pillow, he tried to pray with his wife before he goes to sleep. He's like, this is my rhythm of life. This is my rule of life. I'm thinking through the natural transitions because I want everything in my life to allow me to live fully alive in Jesus. I'm a person that wants to be with Jesus, to know Jesus, to be like Jesus, and I make it my rule of life to do so. So what's your rule of life? What are your natural transitions? What does it look like for you to pursue Jesus throughout your whole entire day because you want to be shaped? You want to look like this very Jesus? All right, so before we close, um, I just want to confess something to you, all right? I'm a pastor, and I want you to hear this, and I'm going to quickly follow up on it. I'm a pastor and I'm going to fail you, all right? Now, this is not like I'm about to drop a bomb on you, okay? Like, I went through a a two-year process to be affirmed as a pastor in the previous church that I worked at before we came to start Storyline Church. My wife and I, in a very awkward, sometimes uncomfortable manner, had our marriage uh, plucked and plumped through, um, worked through our integrity, looked at what we believed. I mean, there was a lot of work that was done to make sure that we were actually called to this, that we had the character to do this, that we were following Jesus, that we were seeking after Jesus. So I'm not saying that there's any like un- this disqualifying thing that's taking place in my life, but I am human. Like, I, I'm going to fail you. I, I hate to say that. I really do. I, I mean, this happened just as early as a, last, a couple weeks ago, all right? So I, stand, I was standing up here. I was preaching. I put my foot in my mouth. I come down. My wife is so gracious, and she looks at me. She speaks hard truth into my life, says, hey, this is how this thing could have been taken that you said, and it could have really hurt this particular couple in the life of our church. That night, I had to go, and I had to call that couple. I had to confess that, ask for their forgiveness, because I did not want them to be hurt by my words. They weren't in my mind as I said it, but I knew that my words could hurt them. I then had to go to my community group two days later and I had to confess it to my community group. I did. Like, hey, I said this 
I did not have them in mind. I need you to know that, but I need to think more about the words that I'm saying before they roll off the tip of my tongue. I probably have done, hurt you or said other things uh, in ways that I've needed to repent to you. I pray that I have. As as it happens in the future, I pray that the counsel of the Holy Spirit would be quick in my life, that I would repent and repent quickly, and that I would be one that models that before you. But you need to know I'm going to fail you. Andy, as a pastor here, he's going to fail you. All right? This is why we are nothing but under-shepherds. All right, we are under shepherds that are seeking to do the best that we can and loving you, pointing you to Jesus, helping you grow and mature in your relationship with Jesus, but we are going to fail you. Now, here's the good news, all right? It's actually good news that I am only an under shepherd. It's good news that there is the weight of Christ's church is not on the shoulders of a pastor like me. It's good news that you have a chief shepherd, that you have a savior and a Lord Jesus who will never fail you, who will never forsake you, and is the cornerstone that the whole entire church is built on. This Jesus has performed and shown himself blameless in ways that me and Andy and any other pastor that may arise in the life of our church could ever perform before you. The word blameless here for a pastor actually means like you just can't lob an accusation, meaning like you can't take them to court on any of those things. There's another word that's used for blameless throughout the Bible that means there's an unblemishedness to them. There's zero fault in them. That's what Jesus is. Andy and myself, we're the first. Hopefully you can't take us to court, right? Jesus, he's perfect. He's unblemished. There's nothing that you can bring against him. Jesus in his temptation, he was tempted in order to use his role for his own gain. The devil devil said, I'll give you all the kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus chose the kingdom of heaven over anything that the devil could give him in this life. Jesus, as his rule of life, would neglect the crowds to get away with his father because there was a holiness, there was a devoutness to him that he loved and pursued and was zealous for his relationship with God. You look at Jesus, when he went to trial, there was no accusation that could stick because Jesus was perfect. You look at Jesus when he's been betrayed and Peter takes up the sword and has terrible aim and takes off a dude's ear. Jesus doesn't resort to being a brawler or a striker. He's actually gentle and he heals even when he's being betrayed and he's, a, he's a facing his, the largest traitor in his life. You see Jesus being blameless and faithful in everything. He was like a sheep that went quietly to the slaughter so that he could stand in your place, die the death that you deserve to die so that you would no longer have to face the judgment that would come for your sin and then rose victoriously and now has applied all of it to you if you've you've trusted in Jesus alone. This very Jesus is the cornerstone of his church. He's the senior pastor. He's the chief shepherd. Andy and me, we're just under shepherds. We're gonna fail you, but you have a Jesus, a chief priest. You have a high priest, a pastor, an elder that will never fail you. And that is good news for you. That's good news for me too. So look, um, most of you know, like, my, my parents have moved here to St. Louis in just, like, the last few weeks, right? 
Um, and here, like every person I talk to that's talked to my dad is like, you look exactly like your dad. <laughs> you look exactly like your mannerisms. They're a lot alike. Your voice, like if I were to talk to you on the phone, I don't know if I could tell you, tell the difference between the two of you. Look, I've been shaped by my parents, the leaders of my home. A lot of who I am, like, is just an imitation of what I learned and inherited from them in my own home. Look, the same happens within God's household as well. So let's be a church that catches the bigger vision for what the end goal of the church is. That's to look and be more like Jesus that we're taking this good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. And as we take them, we disciple them up to what it looks like to be mature in the faith. And the pastors, the leaders, the elders of the church are those that are be shaped by Jesus that help us move and progress in that way. They're blameless at home. They're blameless in their character. And they're blameless in their doctrine. Let's be a church that catches the bigger vision, but also make sure that we are appointing leaders in the life of our church that help us reach that vision. Amen? Let's pray.